not uh, uh, me in the midst of a book project that I'm trying to get finished. And so I've been using this time to write class to spend writing the book. And this is a devotional book that I want to get done in time for you to get a copy of this year at the end of the year as, as kind of a, a, a Christmas gift. So I'm, I'm working on this for you guys as, as well as others. They are devotionals from the Torah. Now, most of us in here would have some type of a normal Bible that we would consider to be the Christian scriptures. And that's a marvelous thing to have. And, and when we take our Bible, it's, it's divided up. We've got the Old Testament and we've got the New Testament. And among the New Testament, there are Gospels, um, which were written probably after Paul's letters. We've got Paul's letters. And, and among Paul's letters is one he wrote to a young fellow named Timothy. And actually two. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is a passage that I suspect a good bit of y'all, if you don't have it memorized, you at least have a familiar spot in your heart for it when you hear it. It says, all Scripture is breathed out or inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness." that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Man there is anthropos in the Greek. It is generic. It's including women. So women, it's not like it's just for the guys. This is for both. But what's important that I want to emphasize that Paul wrote to this young fella, and this came up with me as recently as this last week. When I was talking to one of the most devoted, devout, trained Christian leaders that I know. And this Christian leader said to me, I made a decision this year to read through the Bible. And this Christian leader said to me, and I got to tell you, I'm thinking about changing my resolution. Because I just find it so frustrating to read through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. It's so frustrating because it just seems to me to be so divorced from our reality and our world. And I said to him, I said, oh, 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 oh. oh, oh. I may have only had three O's. I don't want to misquote myself. It may have just been, oh, 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 but it was somewhere between that and oh, 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 oh. And I said to him, but you know 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And of course he does. He quotes it. I think he's got the whole New Testament memorized. And I said, remember when Paul says, all Scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's telling Timothy that the Old Testament is breathed out by God. He's telling his young man in the faith that it's profitable not just for teaching other people, bless you, but it's profitable for training people in righteousness. 
It's profitable for reproving people, correcting people. And it's so that we can be complete. Mature is that word in the Greek. That we can be equipped for every good work. I said, so would you do me a favor? Instead of stopping what you're doing, let me give you some resources to help you uncover the pearls that are buried. You're just not seeing them yet. And that's what I'm trying to do with this Torah devotional. I'm trying to take this Torah devotional and do, sorry, my, there we go, do that very thing. And so within the framework of the Torah devotional, our Hebrew scriptures, ah, there we go, our Hebrew Bible, if we were looking at the Hebrew Bible, ah, that's it. The Hebrew Bible is what we would consider the Old Testament. These are the scriptures that Paul was talking about. And those were not put together as a book at the time. They were a collection of scrolls. But now we live in the 21st century where we have books. And so this would be called a Hebrew Bible would be called the Tanakh. We've talked about this. That's because those scrolls fall into three different sections. The first section are the Torah scrolls. Torah is just a Hebrew word that means law. So those are the law scrolls. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then the second set of scrolls are the Nevi'im. That's just a Hebrew word that means prophets. And those prophet scrolls begin with Joshua and go through a lot of what we consider the historical books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, not 1st and 2nd Chronicles. That's not included in the prophets. But it includes the major prophets. It includes the minor prophets. And then that third set of writings, those third set of writings are called the Ketuvim. That's just a Hebrew word that means the other writings. And that includes First and Second Chronicles, but it's also a lot of the wisdom books, Psalms and Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, books like that as well. So what I'm trying to do that you are helping me do and what we're concentrating on right now are devotionals that, look, if you don't know me, I'm a lawyer. That's what I do day to day. So where should a lawyer be spending his time writing his devotional book from? The law, the Torah. Let the lawyer be the lawyer and write it on the law. So that's what I'm doing and that's what you've got this morning. So I've pulled out five or six devotionals, however many we've got time for. And the theme behind the devotionals that I've chosen today is that God keeps his promises. Now, we know that intellectually. Doesn't hurt to be reminded. But I want us to see it and examine it from a couple of different facets that may apply to you in your life where you are right now. 
It certainly does me. So that's my goal, and that's what we're going to look at. But I can't leave well enough alone because everybody made New Year's resolutions, I'm thinking, and one of mine, which I'm sure was one of yours, is spend some time with Bob Dylan each week. (laughs) So I want to put today's theme in Dylan speak. Shall we? We've got the sound up. Here we go. That's it. God don't make promises that he don't keep. It's true. And if you walk out of here with nothing else this morning, I'm going to have you with an earworm. God don't make promises that he don't keep. It's going to be an earworm in your head, okay? And you're going to be all day long. God don't make promises that he don't keep. Bob said it. Okay? So let's take our first devotional. And our first devotional this morning is going to come from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 1.8. God said to Moses and the people, See, I've set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. The people of Israel had been taken out of a slavery and a bondage in Egypt. And it had not been an easy journey. Pharaoh didn't want to let them go. Moses called down from God plague after plague after plague before Moses, before Pharaoh would let them go. Finally, they get to, to, to leave, but Pharaoh chases them down when he has a change of heart. And there at the Reed Sea, it takes a divine miracle for the people to be rescued from the strongest army known on the planet. And without the people raising a weapon at all, God not only provides for their escape on dry land, but He wipes out the army. Then they struggle. They struggle through a wilderness experience because they don't understand God. They think God's just a convenient thing. They think it's fine to whine and moan and bellyache. They think it's fine to complain about Him. And God starts shaping them and molding them into a people, uh, from a people into a nation that is His chosen people. But it's not an easy thing. They try idolatry to make God into something that they think He should be instead of letting Him be God. And it seems that some of their leaders fight against what God is saying and against Moses' leadership, which was commissioned by God. 
It just seems that everything that could happen is running contrary to the promise that God made. And they get to the promised land. They send in spies to check out how to do it. Ten of the twelve spies come back and say it can't be done. There are giants in the land. So they spend a lifetime wandering in the wilderness, 40 years. It just doesn't seem like the promise of God is going to bear fruit. But from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation, it does. Because God keeps His promises. And so God moves them in there and He gives them the land. Now, there are promises that God has made to you and to me. God has promised to give you and me If our hearts are in Jesus, if we are new creations in Jesus, he says we'll have a peace that passes understanding. He says we'll learn contentment, whether we've got surplus or whether we're in need. He's learned, he's taught us that he'll equip us for every good work that he's prepared for us beforehand. He's made promises to you and to me. He's promised that he's going to change us from being just enslaved in sin into a redemptive promised land. And it may not be easy to change. That transformation, little by little, day by day, is a lifetime journey sometimes through the wilderness. But when we have our faith in Him, we can be assured that God don't make promises that He don't keep. Bob said it. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are our passages to look at. I want us to go to another one now. We're going to go back to Genesis to where that promise started. Genesis 17, verse 8. God is speaking to Abraham. And God says, I'm going to give to you and I'm going to give to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I'm going to be their God. This is over 400 years before the passage we just saw. This is a promise that in our minds would be something that was made back in the late 1500s. No, before that. They're 400 years in Egypt. They don't go to Egypt for another hundred years. This is like the 1400. This is when Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. A promise made that for us seems so long ago and to the Israelites seems so long ago, but it's one that God kept. And, and that's just the way God is. And so God keeps that promise and, and we have the assurance of that. It's the promise that, that, that worried Abraham's grandson. Abraham gives 
fathers Isaac. Isaac fathers Jacob and Esau. So now we are a couple of generations down from Abraham. Esau is an, I mean, Jacob's an interesting fella. Jacob is, is um, trying to think of the polite way to say this, recognizing he's a saved man. He's, he's, he's a goof up. He just goofs everything up. I mean, he, he's not a, a smart dude. He's not really a holy dude. He's not, you know, his name means someone who's grasping at a heel, but it sounds just like and becomes a, 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 a word for a deceiver, a trickster. He tricks his brother, Esau, his twin. He deceives his father, all for personal gain. Because he wants the inheritance. He wants the stuff. And so he goes about it in a very sinful, deceptive way. And you know the expression, what goes around comes around? Well, it happens. There is cosmic karma, but for the Lord's intervention... Or as Paul says, whatsoever a man soweth, that also shall he reapeth. That was King James. But you reap what you sow, modern English. And so the deceiver, Jacob, he goes and he wants to get a wife. And he sees the beautiful Rachel. Oh, she's just gorgeous. He wants Rachel. So he goes to Rachel's dad and he cuts a deal. I'll work for you for seven years. I get Rachel. Rachel's dad says, deal. Seven years go by. Scripture says it just seemed to fly like fast because he was so in love with Rachel. And they have the wedding. And he goes into the wedding tent. And his father-in-law has tricked the trickster and sent in the older sister, Leah. Now you may be saying, well, surely Jacob saw the difference. A, they didn't have electric lights. B, I'm willing to wager you he was so stone drunk he didn't know the difference. And there are implications of that you can find in the scripture. That's who he was. This guy's a goofball. He can't even stay sober at his wedding to tell whether or not he's got the right woman in bed. He wakes up the next morning with a doozy of a hangover. And realization, he got the wrong wife. He goes to his father-in-law. He says, hey, you cheated me. 
The father-in-law says, hey, that's the way it is with our people. The older gets the blessing first. You'd know that if you thought about it because you cheated your older brother out of his blessing. I'm not going to let you take my younger daughter and cheat my older daughter out of hers. So Jacob, the goof-up, says, well, I want the younger daughter. His father-in-law says, okay, but I want another seven years of work, man. That's going price for a daughter. Jacob says, okay, I want the daughter now, and I'll give you the seven years of work afterwards. And they get that deal cut. So now Jacob's got two wives. Men, do not think that's a blessing. I said to one of my lawyers one time, Kevin Parker, I said, Kevin, what do you think about polygamy? And he said, you think I want more than one woman telling me to take out the trash? (laughs) When you've got the perfect wife, Becky, you don't need a second. So Jacob the goof-up has got two wives now. And you want to talk about sibling rivalry. These two women are competing against each other to see who can pump out the most kids, specifically sons. And poor little Rachel, the favorite wife, she doesn't seem to be able to have any. And Leah is popping them out like candy. So Rachel says, well, hey, I've got a maidservant. Why don't you use her? And Leah dries up. She says, oh, well, I too can play that game. I've got a maidservant. Use mine. Then finally Rachel gets pregnant. Has Joseph and Benjamin. Jacob's got 12 sons by four different women under the same roof. And then his father-in-law has so cheated him, he leaves to go back where his brother, his twin brother, he had cheated 20 years earlier, was last heard from saying, I will kill him. I will kill him. So he goes back fearing for his life and that of his family, and he's made a bunch. He's got sheep. Goats galore. And so he's just knowing his brother's going to take it all back. And this guy's got a, a really tough... Now, you would think, surely he's learned his lesson. Oh, no. He takes his 12 sons and makes it real apparent that Joseph's the favorite. Joseph's the favorite. He gives Joseph a coat that's a a, a showpiece, a a showstopper. The other brothers hate Joseph. He sends the other brothers out to work. He keeps Joseph at home and then just sends Joseph as his messenger to check on the other brothers to make sure they're doing the work right. The the brothers see Joseph coming. They want to kill him. 
But they recant when they realize instead of killing him, they can sell him into slavery. And you didn't get Amber Alerts back then, and you didn't have the Internet. You couldn't get Tim Wilson to go find him. And then they take his Technicolor dream coat, and they douse it in goat blood, which, by the way, goat skin is how Jacob tricked his parent, dad into thinking he was his brother. I mean, this, this just, this, the, the ironies in this story just pile on. Joseph looks like he's uh, dead. He's been sold into slavery in Egypt. Decades later, Joseph, not a teenager anymore, he's in his 40s by the hand of God has become number two man in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And the, the, the brothers find out Joseph is supplying the food that the family needs to live through a really harsh multi-year famine. And so Joseph sends word back that, that there's an entire drama I don't have time to tell you and how all of that unfolded. It's, it's a tremendous story. But Joseph sends word back once his, everybody realizes it's him and says, get my dad and bring him and bring the whole family, bring everybody to Egypt. Now you've got Jacob, whose name God changed to Israel. His son are the 12 tribes of Israel. Because he is named Israel. God took his name goof up, deceiver, trickster, and changed it when they wrestled. But the story still calls him Jacob a bunch because he still is just a goof up. And he's now an old goof up. The guy who never seems to get it right. And Joseph is saying, bring everybody to Egypt. And now think of this as Jacob or Israel. God had promised to give them the land. He'd, he'd promised it to Jacob. He'd promised it to Jacob's dad and his grandfather, to Isaac and to Abraham. Is Jacob supposed to abandon that? You're thinking, well, no, he's taking a vacation. <laughs> Get out of the 21st century. This is not the kind of things where the nation of Canaan had a nice legal system and you filed the deed that recorded the land you owned with the, the authorities and it would be honored later absent you selling it. The title company would make sure of that. No. Possession... Not nine-tenths of the law back then. It was ten-tenths. You give it up, it ain't yours anymore. You want to keep it, you got to fight the invaders. So Jacob's got the land. It was promised to him. And, and he's the key to keeping it for the family. And he's thinking, I'm supposed to move the family to Egypt? I've goofed up so many times in my life. Here as I'm getting near old death, 
Christ's door in my old age? Am I going to goof up and deny the family, the land that God had promised? So Israel, Jacob, he's trying to figure out what to do. That's the context. He takes his journey with all that he has and he goes to Beersheba and he offers sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Well, it's his God too now. But he's seeking this word out from God as Israel, as the man of promise. And he's holding God accountable for the promises made to Isaac, his dad. Then God speaks to him in visions in the night and he says, Jacob, Jacob, goofball, deceiver, trickster, I know who you are. I haven't forgotten who you are, but... I am God, the God of your father, and don't be afraid to go down to Egypt because I'm going to make you a great nation there. And I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hands will close your eyes. You get to be with your son that you favored when you die. But be Confident, I'm going down there with you. Finally, the goof up seeks the word of the Lord and gets the affirmation it's the right thing to do, even though it flies against what common logic would have said for him. But I really, really like that passage. I like that passage because he wants to know God's presence in his life. He wants to know that God is concerned for him. He is seeking God with sacrifice, a willingness to put out what he's got and accept what God wants. He's focusing on the will of God and saying, God, are you going to be with me? Do you care? Are you concerned? Have I messed things up so badly in my life that you don't care anymore? And he gets the reassurance that the reliable God is going to do what the reliable God says he's going to do. You know why? Because God don't make promises that he don't keep. And you get that through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Let me give you another passage. I told you there was a dramatic story about Joseph. Joseph gets sold into slavery. And he goes to, gets bought by a fellow named Potiphar. And God's hand is on Joseph. And, and, and it's taking care of, and everything Joseph touches just seems to work. Talk about the prayer of Jabez. Before that, there was the prayer of Joseph. I mean, everything he touched, it just worked. It had God's blessing on him. In fact, while everything he touched was blessed, the only bad thing happened was something he didn't touch. Potiphar's wife. She likes little young Joseph. And tries to seduce him. And Joseph won't touch her. Because he knows it's not right before God. 
And hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Actually, it does. Hell has worse fury than a woman scorned. But a woman scorned's up there. So she pretends Joseph raped her and gets Joseph thrown into prison. Now, here's a fella who's just trying to do right by the Lord. And Joseph's master takes him and puts him into the prison. But it's the place where the king's prisoners were confined. That's important. See, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And ultimately, what happens is, over time, Joseph is known to be an interpreter of dreams that nails it for several servants of the king, of Pharaoh. And those servants get released. One gets killed, as Joseph said he would. The other one's restored to his position. And finally, one day, remembers to tell Pharaoh, Hey, you're troubled by your dreams and the wise people of Israel uh, of Egypt can't interpret them? There was a fellow in prison that was pretty good at that. You might want to give him a try. He got it right for me and he got it right for the guy you butchered. Joseph walked in faith. He interpreted, Pharaoh calls him out of jail. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh says, man, you got it right. You got both dreams, put them together. It's the right thing. And, and, and I, I like what you're saying. And, and I'm going to put you in charge because of your wisdom. And that's the way it is with faith. See, faith is not a magic pill. It's a life choice that's seated in God's will. I'm going to send that line to Bob Dylan. I want him to put a song to it. Faith is not a magic pill. It's a life choice seated in God's will. We want to think of faith as just some, something that's going to work cosmic magic. What faith is, is it's, I'm going to trust you, God. Not because you're promising me that five minutes from now, I'm going to be fixed. Or my loved one's going to be healed. You might do that. And to you comes all of the glory. But my faith is my life choice that I'm going to sit firmly in your will, whatever that is, knowing it's the right place for me to be and trusting you to know where I belong in your cosmic plan to bring everything to completion in Jesus. And it may mean me suffering but if so, I'm suffering for the sake of Christ and in that I will glory even in the midst of the pain. It may mean sorrow. But if I've got sorrow to endure in this life because it works in the kingdom of God in Christ to bring all things under His glory 
then praise the Lord, I'm suffering sorrow for the sake of my Lord Jesus. And I've got the sorrow. You miss your wife. But you know in deep in the heart of God, you're where God wants you to be in this grand cosmic scheme. And even in the midst of the suffering, there is a joy at following the Savior. That's what faith is. And we can have that kind of faith. We can have that kind of belief because of who God is, who we have our faith in. We have our faith in God. And do you know what? God don't make promises that He don't keep. He just doesn't. All right, we got time for one more. Oh, here we go. Oh, here we go. Now, the people of Israel have been there for 400 years in Egypt. Generations have come and gone, come and gone, come and gone, come and gone, come and gone. They don't have their Bibles to be reading bedtime stories to their kids. They're amidst a bunch of pagans. And the daughter of Pharaoh comes down, but you need the backstory to this. The, the Israelites have grown so prolifically. There's so many of them. Pharaohs, we're under a whole new regime in Egypt. The Pharaoh that knew Joseph, long gone. This is not a Pharaoh favorably disposed to the Israelites. They're now slaves of the Pharaoh of Egypt. But as a slave population, they're growing so large, Pharaoh's getting concerned. So Pharaoh tells the wet nurses, every time a, think Obi-Jen, every time a baby's born to the Israelites, if it's a boy, kill him. The wet nurses, um, a good number of them are moved with pity and they don't. Moses is born. They don't kill Moses. And the mom keeps Moses for about three months. But after about three months, Jochebed, his mother, I don't know if three months he starts crying, but, but he's too old to keep. And it's going to be obvious he's a boy. And, and so what do you do? So she, take reeds, she takes reeds and she makes an ark. It's the only time in the Old Testament that the word ark is used other than with Noah. Doesn't use the word boat. Uses the word ark. This is going to save him. And so he, she makes an ark out of reeds, puts pitch on it, puts the baby in it, sets him down by the rushes down where Pharaoh's daughter would bathe, where an Egyptian could hold on to him, and then sends the older sister to watch what happens. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh comes down to bathe at the river. She sees the basket among the reeds. When she opens it, she sees the child and the baby's crying. She took pity on him and said, this has got to be one of the Hebrews' children's. At this point, Moses' older sister, who's kind of watching, steps up and says, um, do you want me to go get a nurse from the Hebrew w women to nurse this child for you? Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, go. So the girl goes and calls Moses' mother. Look at this. 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to the mother, doesn't know it's his mom, take this child away and nurse him for me and I'll give you your wages. Mom's now getting paid to take care of her baby that's supposed to be dead and has the protection of Pharaoh's household over him. Now, you want to talk about God. Whoa! This is God giving abundantly in His will. This is God giving above and beyond. This is Ephesians 3.20 before it's written. God is able to do far more exceedingly abundant, more than you could ever think or imagine or dream or ask or conceive. The most priceless treasure, that of your little baby, that you think is supposed to be dead, now has the protection of Pharaoh and is given back to you. And you're getting paid to take care of the little baby. That is God's giving abundant in His will and it's replete throughout that. And God promises you and me that He's going to give us what we need to do what He wants done. What we got to do is just figure out what He wants done. And then through the power of His Spirit and the blessings of that He's given us, do it in faith, knowing that... God You got it? Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? And uh, we'll start Colossians next week. Father, thank you so much for a chance to be here. Thank you, Father, for being faithful to your promises. The faithfulness that we see most clearly in the provision of Jesus Christ. Our redemption. Our atonement. The purchase price that pays the penalty of our sin, our inadequacy, our inattentiveness, our deceitfulness. That gives us a new life that you're bringing into perfection in Jesus, Father. And I pray that blessing over all who hear your word. May their hearts be soft and tender. May they bow before you. In Jesus' name, amen. See you guys next Sunday, God willing.